It is late 2019. A structural engineer and an architect are sitting together on an evening train back to London. They have spent the day working on a restoration project at the impressive 18th century Harewood House near Leeds. But instead of their usual conversation about the day's work or their evening plans, the architect is rapidly typing on his laptop. He has something that he urgently needs to finish that evening. The structural engineer is curious. What could be so important that his colleague is absorbed so intently? He looks over and asks what the architect is doing. The architect explains that he is putting the finishing touches to a critical piece of work that is going to affect his entire profession. It is a declaration that recognises climate breakdown and biodiversity loss as the twin crises that form the most serious threat of our time. It sets out the actions architects need to take and invites companies to pledge to work towards these goals. The headline reads, Architects declare climate and biodiversity emergency. The structural engineer sits back, deep in thought. For years he has sought to make his designs more efficient and to reduce waste, but he knows that more needs to be done. It is as though his whole career has been leading to this. But he knows that for change to happen, engineers need all the help they can get. It is going to be a slow path to decarbonise construction and we need to be helping people find those first steps, second steps, third steps because it's a, it's a long haul. I think a lot of people, quite understandably, they want some quick fixes. They want to know, they want to do the right thing, they want to know what the right thing is. They just don't want the right thing to hurt quite as much as it's going to hurt. And that's the, that's the big leap that we're going to have to make sooner or later. Welcome to Engineering Matters. This episode is presented by Alex Conacher and Rian Owen, and this week we speak to the structural engineer, Dr. Mike Cook, a partner at the Bureau Happold Engineering Consultancy and a former vice president of iStructE, the institution of structural engineers. His whole life has been spent trying to design buildings that touch the earth lightly through the economic use of materials and their design making him the perfect person to rally the engineering industry in response to the climate emergency. When Mike Cook saw what his colleague, Steve Tompkins, of architectural firm Howarth Tompkins Limited, was working on, he knew there would be a swell of architects signing up to the declaration. He also knew that to have any chance of success, they would absolutely need to work with engineers who saw the world in the same way, the way Mike himself does. The initial architect's declaration has since been joined by declarations from Mike's own structural engineers, the civil engineers, building services, landscape architects and project managers, all of whom have made a public pledge towards positive change. Building and construction accounts for nearly 40% of energy-related carbon dioxide emissions. Meeting the needs of society without breaching the Earth's ecological boundaries, as the declaration puts it, would require a paradigm shift in behaviour. Mike has been a partner at Bureau Happold for over 20 years. He was its chairman for six years, and this year he has been awarded the iStructE Gold Medal in recognition of his work coordinating the various engineering climate declarations. Now looking back on his own career, Mike realises that it is not so strange to find himself in this place at this time. When I was young, and I think I mean five or six or something, I know I used to, I'm sure a lot of children do, I used to annoy my father a huge amount because I was always asking why, and he helpfully was always answering Zed. 
While Mike didn't think this was overly funny, being a dad, his father did. I kind of think this is normal, but perhaps it wasn't so normal that I kept on asking why. I actually was rather interested in understanding why well, you know, certain chemicals reacted in a certain way and others worked. And I was really interested in magnetism and how machines work and how the planet worked and why Norway made matches and, and Detroit made cars. You know, why, why was that? I actually say now I, I teach engineers something called creative design at Imperial College and I try and urge them and, and actually anyone I get a chance to talk to, to keep asking the question why keep that youthful fascination with this weird thing called the world that you've landed in and you kind of want to know why it is what it is and how it works and sometimes i think we lose that a lot of time spent in libraries brought mike many of the answers he was looking for but he remembers one book in particular a book on the planning of london and this kind of blew my mind to think that a place like London actually got planned and that people were then producing future plans for how it could be better. And I'd look at them and I think, is that better? You know, they were telling me it was. And I was fascinated when they talked about taking the traffic away from London and building all these big orbital roads, a network of four orbital roads. And the idea that that was going to cause massive disruption and change and kind of aggressive demolition of, of a city that I knew because I lived on the edge of London and yet it was going to apparently help it heal it make it a better place. At this time he lived near where London's orbital motorway the future M25 was starting to be built. Enthralled by this apparent contradiction of destruction and development he had to see it. I went out there at weekends and tracked the proposed route and started taking photographs of, of what was going to be destroyed. And it was beautiful, beautiful countryside, peaceful countryside that was going to be completely destroyed. And yet at the same time as kind of mourning what I was going to lose, I was excited by that massive transformation and change that it was going to have for transportation because I knew how difficult it was to get around London from Dover up to Birmingham and all the big lorries were going through the villages. I knew that couldn't carry on. So that fascinated me. The fascination with the UK's growing motorway network did not abate here. And I remember sitting in the car with my parents driving along. I think it was it was one of the existing motorways, uh, but I don't remember which one. And I said, who, who, who kind of makes these things happen? I think we were going under a, an amazing four-level interchange. And they said, civil engineers. At the moment Mike heard civil engineer, he believed that it meant engineer of civilization, and he knew he wanted to become one. Fry Otto was an engineer architect. I'm never quite sure which predominated. Engineers think of him as an architect, and architects think of him as an engineer. He was a man with a vision to invent a new form of architecture coming out of the Second World War where really architecture had become rather full of itself and needed to be imposing and almost make people feel small because the power of the state was big and many wanted to react against that. And he started to create a, an architecture out of working on lightweight, lightweight use of materials, minimal need for material and following nature as, as the guide to that. And that became his life's work. Fry Otto is famous for a lifetime of projects that made use of impressive and unexpected forms of nature. Often these appear to take the form of gossamer webs or veils, suspended from one or more masts. 
Mike first met Friotto, as well as his first boss and other mentor, Ted Happold, while working at Arab as he prepared to take his Cambridge entrance exam. Although Mike found the work at Cambridge tedious and was tempted to quit engineering for good, this early experience with Arup, Ted Happold and Fry Otto redeemed everything and kept the young engineer passionate to see what engineering could achieve. It's interesting to look back and, and see that the way we build, the way we use our materials, the way we seek really efficient use of those materials and and out of this try to create buildings that somehow have a resonance with people i believe through a resonance with nature sounds a bit grand but it's the way i've described my thinking and on a number of the projects that the, the projects that i'm proudest of and that think back to and would be in my book of best projects i've been involved in they're all looking to express the natural flows of forces in the buildings. They're all looking to use material in ways that will be highly efficient. Such as pure tension cable nets or pure compression shells. Sometimes not pure compression shells, but still shells and very efficient in their use of material. And out of those sort of natural forms, you get a real efficient use of material, but you also get some rather beautiful shapes. And I've tried to understand what makes them so beautiful. Uh, they are not boxes. And I think one of the things that they do is they speak of how they carry the heavy loads from above down through columns or walls down to the ground. You can kind of read how it happens and it almost the idea would be that it, it feels like something you've seen in nature, whether it's a strong, surprisingly strong snail shell that's both beautiful and very efficient, or a beautiful cobweb hanging with the dew on it that's remarkably strong and efficient and doesn't require the spider to make much material, yet does a very substantial job. You have a kind of empathy, I think, with things that feel natural. Bureau Happold was initially founded by Ted Happold and seven others in the city of Bath. Mike joined when he was 22 and stayed there for the rest of his career. And it was always these light, natural forms that avoided waste, nuisance materials, as Mike calls them, which pleased him most. One of the very early projects that I, I worked on in those early Bureau Happold days was on a project called Challenge to British Genius. The project was for a large tent, or more poshly called tension structure, set in Battersea Park in London to celebrate, it was an exhibition of British invention, inventiveness, the project was a giant tent set under an enormous canvas roof with one single mast in the middle. And then an array of cables coming out from that single mast which picked up points on the canvas so it created and lifted it. So it created a sort of overall conical kind of form but the, the membrane itself was more of a dome shape. As a junior engineer, Mike's job was building the 1 in 100 scale model. I made the most beautiful model I was really proud of, physical model, not only to show what it looked like, but because we didn't have the computer technologies then, we measured that model and gave it to the manufacturer so they had a cutting pattern for the full-scale structure. And in this structure, Mike sees the precursor to one of the most iconic projects in the country. 
but I can't believe I'm the first person to notice it. But when you look at that scheme or that was built in, in Battersea, it's it's like a prototype for the Millennium Dome because it's got the single central mast and then from that mast, cables radiate out and pick up the membrane. Now, if you look at Millennium Dome, you've got 12 masts. They can't all occupy the middle space. So they go a ring of 12 masts around. And from the tops of those masts, you pick up the material and pluck it upwards. And so really... It's, it is like a prototype of the Millennium Dome, which was done something like 25 years later. And of course, it had the same engineers at the helm. Ian Liddell, my major mentor for many, many years in Bureau Happold, fantastic engineer and a iStrutty gold medal winner. It was his design in Battersea, and it was he was the ultimate lead on the design in Greenwich for the Dome. Another memorable project for Mike will be familiar to anyone who has spent time in London's museums. I had the luck to be working on the competition with Norman Foster, i.e. Foster and Partners, on a design, a competition to design, redesign the courtyard for the British Museum once the books had been taken away from the museum and put in the new British Library building. The books were kept in the heart of the museum, in what was originally an open courtyard, but had been filled in with buildings over the years to store this archive. Being in the heart of the museum, it gave them a fantastic opportunity to give their museum a new heart. And Norman saw this very clearly. And together we all worked on a new roof, a new basements, and a creation of what apparently is the largest covered public courtyard in Europe, I think it is. It took a while for us to recognise that to achieve something as light and elegant and as beautiful as we all wanted, it needed to have really very little material in it. We didn't want a roof with deep, deep beams, which is what you'd have needed if they'd been flat or not not very curved. So quite bravely, we jointly developed a very curvy roof with a really complicated geometry, necessary because of the boundaries that we had to sit on. This required help from the University of Bath, as at this time they did not have the computer technologies themselves. And it kind of developed a roof geometry which was based on the idea of inflating a soap film as a roof and then turning that soap film into a, a steel lattice to make it rigid like a shell. And by being that curved, it got the shell-like action that I was so excited about, you know, being as efficient as a snail shell, using the shape. And uh, we'd won the competition. We'd had time then to develop it to be as beautiful as, as we wanted it. And Norman Foster was a huge push. He wasn't happy until it was as beautiful as it became. And out of that came a really elegant roof that we're so proud of. And of course, many, many people in the practice who were really important to developing that. But that step from thinking we were going to do something flattish and more conventional to move to become complex, but as a result, very, very light. That was a really, really important move. The lack of modern technologies to model the roof as we would now meant that the team learnt a lot about delivering a design they had never seen before, but they knew it must be possible. Embark on projects where you have a kind of vision of what you want to achieve because you know it's right, you know it's beautiful, you know it's natural. You're going with nature, so it must be possible, but you've never seen it before and you know there's going to be some hurdles ahead. But you have to kind of have confidence in the team's abilities. Looking back on his career, 
Mike's preference for design that tried to follow nature and minimise material waste is very much in line with modern requirements to reduce emissions and to save nature itself. I've always had a path which has wanted to think about nature when designing. Now, I've designed on a, just a building scale predominantly, so it's reflected in the building form, materials and so on. And of course, it can go much bigger if you start thinking about how you design towns and, and cities and, and so on. I guess this planet doesn't just belong to any one person, any one community, any one country, all of the human beings on the planet. It belongs even further than that. It belongs to all of life on the planet. And I think that there's been a massive, there is a massive inequity in the way we use our resources. And this has led to an unsustainable pattern of consumption and exploitation that the climate declarations hope to negate as far as they can. And I think that's, that's part of the paradigm shift. It's about recognising as we develop that every ounce of earth that we use, every gallon of oil, if we still are using it, even every kilometre per metre of air that's creating wind energy, it kind of belongs to everyone. And those that exploit it need to recognise that and see how the benefit that they're getting from using it needs to feed much more widely back into the communities. Living up to the commitments of the declarations is going to be hard, and engineers alone cannot solve the problem of anthropogenic climate change or alter the economic environment that we live in. There is a technical limit to what can be achieved, but the profession is responding and is doing its part. And Mike has been impressed with the strides made by institutions in particular. But I think it's really important to be able to say that the built environment institutions, uh, iStructe, SIBSI and ICE, uh, of the ones that I've been particularly involved with, have all moved forward over the last year and established much stronger direction towards helping their members mitigate climate change and help guide them towards better practice. But it, it does need more. It does need more. All professional firms who've signed and all, all members who really care have to help their institutions do more. Um, encourage them to do it, but then help them as well, provide the thinking, provide the contributions, even go and provide the training. They've got to participate. The declarations themselves are only as good as the engineers and companies backing them. If you would like to take the pledge, head to www.constructiondeclares.com or your industry-specific page to find out more. But to ensure that a company's commitment is serious, the declaration must be signed by a board member. The declaration reads, Engineers will seek to raise awareness of the climate and biodiversity emergencies and the urgent need for action amongst clients, collaborators and supply chains. Advocate for faster change in the industry towards regenerative design practices and a higher governmental funding priority to support this. Establish climate and biodiversity mitigation principles as a key measure of the industry's success, demonstrated through awards, prizes and listings. Share knowledge and research to that end on an open source basis. Evaluate all new projects against the aspiration to contribute positively to mitigating climate breakdown and encourage clients to adopt this approach. 
upgrade existing buildings for extended use as a more carbon efficient alternative to demolition whenever there is a viable choice. Include life cycle costing, whole life carbon modelling and post-occupancy evaluation as part of the basic scope of work to reduce both embodied and operational resource use. Adopt more regenerative design principles in practice with the aim of providing structural engineering design that achieves a standard of net zero carbon. Collaborate with clients, architects, engineers and contractors to further reduce construction waste. Accelerate the shift to low embodied carbon materials in all work. And minimise wasteful use of resources in structural engineering design, both in quantum and in detail. This isn't an emergency where everyone can sit back and wait for someone else to act. We've all got to do it and we've certainly got to help our professional institutions. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. Produced by Alex Conacher and Rian Owen. Editing was by Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound design by Jonathan Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And Rory Harris is our executive climate mitigator. Engineering Matters is available on all podcast apps or on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. Follow us on Twitter, at Engineer Matters, or on LinkedIn, just search Reby Media.